pain, like pleasure, is an inevitable and temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago, I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included teachers from many various Buddhist traditions, different lineages. In one of our discussions, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of the guests of honor at this meeting, said that his response to this question is often that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And he went on to define realization, liberation, as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, Nibbana, being complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind, the heart, of an arahant. In hearing His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, speak of this, there was a sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I've sat with Sada Upandita and during last summer and early fall when I practiced with my teacher Pawak Sayadaw, both of these venerable teachers speak in similar ways of this same possibility over and over again. And of course in the suttas the Buddha also often speaks of freedom in this way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to know that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't about what we ordinarily think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so here you are making physical and mental effort in the service of awakening, in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat and in your life outside of retreat, you come to know, to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and certain states of mind decrease. You begin to find that at least to some degree you've let go of what's unwholesome. You've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to yourself, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find that the wholesome 
states of mind, of heart, are more and more our experience, more readily available, manifesting more often in our life. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And this is from the Buddha. Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the, whole, the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, cultivate what is wholesome. The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards suffering to take care and to pay attention rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart-mind of a Buddha in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of confidence within us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my practice, there have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teachings and practice. And when I've been able to be very honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time it's because I was afraid that I wasn't capable of actualizing the teachings through my practice. And I've also found that when I've been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teaching, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. Pawak Sayadaw says that we must always approach things with the attitude that we can be successful. He says this is what the Buddha taught. In a practice interview with him, I went in and said to him, 
in relationship to what he was asking me, how he was asking me to practice. This is hard. This is too hard. And his response to me with uh, light laughter said, no it isn't. And it's true. The suttas, the direct teachings of the Buddha are filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll explore a few of the difficult states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha exhorts us to work with them in our practice in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from an idealistic or philosophical stance. So these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new anger, fear, resistance, judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, etc. It's a long list. From our present life experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes experience. Some of these we may have seen. Met with an open heart, open heart mind and mindfully investigated. Some of them we've ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever is there, whatever's present, whatever arises, including things that may have been tucked away, the skeletons in the closet. When they appear, and it's important to remember the when they appear. It's not about dredging up or digging up afflictive states of mind. Maybe there are some people who seem to be able to find a true happiness, a really true ease of being without ever letting out the skeletons. And that's just fine for them. But I, I've never met anyone like this. I doubt if you have either. Most of us need to discover the skeletons in order to find a really true depth of happiness in our life. Or we'll continue to delude ourselves into thinking that we can be happy but never really, truly being so. 
Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or that we've hidden from or judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously, unwittingly for a long time. This is a a piece by Stephen Mitchell that speaks of this in his unique ways, his version of the myth of Sisyphus. We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him as a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Practice gives us a very powerful tool, this tool of mindfulness, this tool of open-hearted, non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, receptive presence to be able to see clearly and to be able to go home. Our vipassana practice, along with the practices of metta, compassion, and concentration, give us the tools to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind, the heart of kindness, patience, acceptance and compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to others. This is such an amazing process. Learning to open to our experience from the very deepest center of our being. Learning to see the immediacy of experience with no extra baggage attached to see what is right here, right now, and begin to realize that it doesn't have to control us. We notice, we take note how it is in this present moment. The breath, the body, mental states, the various colorations, the moods of the mind are like this in this present moment. With this tool of mindfulness grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that anger, irritation, doubt, fear, judgment, worry, grief, sadness, disappointment, strong desire, really have 
no more control over us. The reactive, habitual need to analyze it over and over and over again, or the habit of trying to get rid of, or trying to fix, or ignoring, or the habit of deluding ourselves with a seeming equanimity that may even have a kind of cavalier tone regarding uh, emotional mind states, difficult mind states, the, oh, it's really nothing kind of attitude. We begin to realize that none of this serves us. When we begin to meet and see these reactive habit patterns themselves with the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, the clear seeing, seeing through, we could say, is opened. Things are as they are. The beginning of a healthy response, rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive habit patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions, is born out of connecting and non-judgmental knowing. Knowing this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened and the skeletons uncovered. We can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it 10 or 20 years ago or just a few moments ago, continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha that goes like this. Rain saddens what is kept wrapped up, but never saddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. And of course, as you well know by now, it's not a linear process. As we continue to strengthen and deepen mindful awareness and concentration and continue cultivating the patient heart of kindness and compassion, it's this whole seamless circle of our practice that allows for the greatest and clearest depth of truth to be seen and known. As we practice here in retreat and on through the years of our practice, we see more clearly and become more and more familiar with the process. We sit quietly and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified, are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. 
to change, they must come to the surface, be accepted, clearly seen, and investigated. And as you know, this takes time. We can't hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience. The rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there is resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is based in fear. And this can be kind of a vicious circle. And so we work, we practice with great gentleness, kindness, and a deep patience for and with ourselves. In through this process of opening to and letting go of. This process of relinquishing. Relinquishing our conditioned habitual patterns of suffering. Relinquishing our addictions of mind. The great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj had this to say. Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. In the Buddha's first Dharma discourse, he said something that I know each of you have heard many times. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. I'd like to take a bit of a further look at what is maybe the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life which is so directly connected to the suffering that we experience in relationship to difficult emotions. The suffering, that, the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe, comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related, Everything is contingent and thus conditional. Everything is in relationship, in an infinitude of changing relationships, including the arising of anger, fear, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachment, sadness, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of this truth is the reality of things. Taking our experience and things to be as though quite solidly in place, permanent. Taking our experience and things to be separate, 
solid happenings which will always eventually create suffering for ourselves and for others. We grasp onto the past and project into the possible future and solidify both in our mind. And yet, life just simply keeps flowing along. But there's uh, good news as well. (laughs) An amazing thing about suffering itself is that it too is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. As the Buddha so very clearly tells us in his teachings of the Four Noble Truths. The first, of course, being suffering that there is suffering. The second being there's a cause to suffering. The third being that there's an end to suffering. And the fourth being the teaching of the path that leads to this end. Here in Taos, during the midsummer through early fall, our rainy season, our monsoon season, in this big open sky of Taos, we often have huge arches of rainbows, even double rainbows at times. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together, just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere, the angle of the light being just right. And then of course one has to be in the right place at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourself, all of our experiences of body and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent, conditional, and empty in and of themselves. It's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us. Uh, It's not so obvious with the more solidly appearing and sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of our mind as permanent, unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me, mine, I, will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, this is the degree to which we'll suffer. Anything we hold onto, anything we cling to, from the material objects, from material objects, to the various permutations of the states of hope and fear, 
will cause us some degree of suffering. And the other side of the same coin, of course, being pushing away, avoiding, resisting. Our practice is about present moment experience, really, truly being in the present moment. This present moment, and this present moment, and this one, and this one, just as it is, right here, right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering. It's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different, that causes us to suffer. The truth is that this moment, however it is, changes, disappears, dissolves in this moment and on and on it goes. So take a look. Take a close look. Liberation isn't based on anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. We can't be free from something that we don't see something that we ignore. We have a saying in English that ignorance is bliss. Ignorance isn't bliss. In the clarity of the Buddha's teaching, ignorance is ignorance and bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent states of suffering. They're not our true nature. They're just two of the many hues in the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. I'd like to spend a little bit of time now exploring a few of the hues of the rainbow of emotional states, beginning with fear. In our practice, and in our life outside of a formal practice, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, feelings such as I I won't attend to, I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe feeling I can't be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or this strong emotional state or this pain in the body, or at times maybe even this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life we sometimes feel. Maybe feeling frozen or caught, this sense of not being able to take the next step. Fear from this perspective can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations or to other people as judgment, 
blaming the critical mind if we take it up, if we believe it. It's his fault. It's because she or it's because they. Blah, blah. Whatever you want to add to that. This fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, maybe feelings of unworthiness, of not being good enough, or maybe just not being enough, not doing it right, or not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. Really, all of this is based in fear. And maybe also the other side of the coin, hope. I'd like to offer you uh, another view of perfection, other than what your conditioned, idealized concept of perfection might be. This comes from Chang Tzu, the Taoist master. His definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but doesn't hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught in identifying with a mind state of judgment, doubt, or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourself or outwardly in relationship to others which is often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's lurking underneath. I think that we're often afraid of the fear, afraid to look directly at it, especially if we've taken a peek and it's not been so easy. One of my teachers told me when I came in to a practice interview, and fearfully reported the experience of fear. And his response was, fear is just fear. When I first heard this, uh, my inward uh, response or reaction was, um, well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> Obviously a taste of irritation and resistance in this, these thoughts. But actually, over time, I began to see that fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere with our practice of mindfulness based in kindness towards ourselves, we begin to be able to meet, to receive fear. Come close to it. Look at it in the eye and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it. And not be so shut off out of fear 
to the vastness of possibility. As we get stronger, as our heart gets stronger and our mindfulness muscle develops, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear. Accept that it is. And know that it doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, me, I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something that's mine. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many other conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know and will never know. It may be a moment of a very intense experience, but from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's clearly not me or mine. And it's not that the energy of fear will never appear again. But we learn to be steadfast, to stand in the fear, lose the fear of fear itself, and begin to see it clearly. See through it, so to say, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. Wendell Berry had a, in his poem, uh, a particular poem of his has a very beautiful way of speaking about this. I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirrings become quiet around me <clears throat> like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them, asleep like cattle. Then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. Then what I am afraid of comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. The Buddha's teachings offer us the possibility of a different perspective, a different relationship to things than how most of us have been trained, how we've been conditioned, how we've been patterned. There's another expression of this um, from the Native American writer M. Scott Mamaday called the fear of Botali. Botali rode among his enemies once, twice, three and four times. And all who saw him were amazed, for he was utterly without fear, so it seemed. But afterwards he said, certainly I was afraid. I was afraid of the fear in the eyes of my enemies. It doesn't work to ignore or try to suppress difficult 
emotional energies. As I'm sure you know, they just reappear. Putting a tight lid on emotional states actually blocks and deadens our sensitivities. Keeping the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And it's not about blindly acting out or blindly believing afflictive emotions. This is like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. Nor is this practice of ours about purposefully dredging up and miring analytically into all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. There can often be quite a bit of restlessness in the body and in the mind, making it difficult or maybe seemingly impossible to become focused and mindful of our experience in the present moment. To practice and understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. The intimacy of connection based in kindness, mindfulness, and a focused attention that Annie and I have mentioned quite a number of times during this retreat. This intimacy being in this in spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience or desiring it to be different. So it's important to learn to work with these difficult, afflictive states of mind, states of body, when they're what's present in the rainbow of our experience. So taking a bit of a look now at anger. In the classical teachings, anger is likened to a pond that's on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. Anger is a very strong, powerful energy. And so from this perspective, it can be quite seductive. I knew someone once whose energy was fueled primarily by anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and powerful in this anger. But unfortunately she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her and feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger and move away. She was a very lonely person and yet so identified in herself as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose herself, lose her energy and power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of anger. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm 
that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who is angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, tight, narrow, constricted. The quality of one's awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective disappear. One often feels restless, maybe driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be difficult. The body is tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a, a sharp a separation between self and other. It's as though there's a line drawn or an invisible wall put up that isn't to be passed. And with each angry moment then deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream. Something that's both amazing, simple, and difficult to see is that anger, rage, and hate develop from a momentary, unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed. Again, pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary unpleasant or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger depends on the quality, depends on the focused strength of our and depth of our attention, our mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any other state of mind, anger isn't solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Thoughts, stories, spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone, and various changing bodily sensations with all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger, and this goes for any emotional state, fear, sadness, disappointment, expectation, desire. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger, it's very helpful to try to just let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind. These thoughts aren't only the expression of anger, they're also feeding the anger. They're like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring attention directly to the sensations in the body feeling the emotion directly and in itself without the story, 
What are you feeling? Maybe heat or tightness or pressure, or heaviness or contraction or some quality of vibration. Where is it? And very important, how is it changing? How is it changing? Notice the mind, meaning at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations. Is there resistance? More contraction? Give this your best attention. Feel it. See it. Is there interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in the body? Take a look. Every experience that occurs within our body-mind continuum is worthy of mindful attention. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience, if the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit. Maybe do some walking meditation. You might even walk faster than you usually do with walking meditation. Bring your attention directly into the body with walking. You might open up to the natural world outside. The expanse of the fields, the flowing river, the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Take an interest. Notice the birds, the prairie dogs, rabbits, insects, cats and dogs, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, in the body. In those moments of a connected, present moment mindfulness, afflictive emotion disappears. It isn't present. The ease, the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected present moment attention is amazing beyond compare in a quietly wonderful way the great Indian teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj who most often taught in dialogue with his students and this is a brief dialogue <clears throat> recorded um, with one of his students. The student asks, what is the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta's answer is, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, don't cause suffering. It's the mind, bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated.
Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. And again, as Wendell Berry so eloquently expresses in another poem, When despair for the world grows in me and I awake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and feel above me the day-blind stars waiting for their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and wisdom that practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing, there's that's free of ego interest. With a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of our own personal advantages, such as power or pleasure or status or prestige or even recognition. With a clear, non-self-absorbed mindful attention based in the heart of kindness, therein lies the possibility of the transformation of the strong energies of fear, anger, clinging, sadness. So now I'd like to spend just a few moments exploring the wanting mind. States of strong desire, greed, clinging, attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment in the mind, is likened to a pond that's filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart-mind is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of strong desire and attachment, we're blinded by desire. And there's some misinterpretation or misunderstanding, actually, in interpreting the Buddha's teachings that all desire is a bad thing. Desire is a natural human experience. It's what got you here on retreat, for instance. There are healthy, worthy, wholesome desires. And there is the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires that we project into the future, for instance. Hoping, dreaming, fantasizing about what we think we need in order to be contented, in order to really be at ease in our life. The thoughts that satisfaction of a particular desire 
will give us something that in fact it won't, that it can't. We can become quite attached, dependent on getting and then trying to keep certain objects of our desire and expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to this or that or trying to get something back or trying to keep something or someone from changing or trying to recreate a changing object a changing experience even here in retreat maybe that particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day or that you had uh, in your last retreat. It's the contraction, the clinging, the attachment, the self-centeredness, the identification around desire. That's the problem. I think we could safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. A really good question that you might ask yourself once in a while is, How driven am I by my desires? So a simple, really quite mundane personal example. Some years ago I was at a retreat center here in New Mexico that has some of the most wonderful, most beautiful flower gardens. I was walking along next to one of these gardens and noticed a very sweet smell. So I followed my nose to where the smell was coming from, to a particular flower. And I got down very close to the flower and really took in the smell, very present, aware of the pleasantness of the experience. And then I got caught. I had to go and do something else, but I wanted to stay there and to continue the experience, experiencing this sweet smell. So with the next moment of clinging and not being willing to let go and go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. I was experiencing tightness in the body and irritation in the mind. I got up and walked away to do what needed to be done next, but there was still a a clinging to the sweet smell even though it was completely gone from my field of experience. I was attached to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to the garden, imagining how nice it would be later when I finally got back there. What just a moment ago was a a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind, a moment of suffering. It happens so quickly. As we begin to see and know attachment and clinging, we find that we're experiencing a kind of tension, stress, a burning, burning desire. For many people, there's often some confusion, a delusion, that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. 
It's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and know it clearly. What is ease, happiness, really? It's the release from the tension, the pressure, the burning of desire. A moment of release from the stress of attachment. Liberation through non-clinging. The Buddha talked about everything burning. The eye is burning, eye consciousness is burning, the ear is burning, ear consciousness is burning, and on through all of the six sense doors in the same way. And then he went on to say, burning of what? Burning of desire, burning of hatred, jealousy, fear, burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago, I uh, found a recipe at risk of giving you a recipe that you may already have and uh, cook up occasionally. I'd like to share this recipe with you. It's called a recipe for unhappiness. And the ingredients are one cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of flight whining, a quarter a pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, and four sprigs of envy, minced for garnish. And what you do with the ingredients is this. In a large bowl, whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints and let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over-season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what is and to inability, uh, inability to accept what is and blend. Exact, ex- add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let it stand until tears form garnished with minced envy, and serve immediately. The Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindful attention and investigation that's grounded in kindness. A strong and clear, concentrated, mindful attention that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes of afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them seeing their nature, just like we see through the colors of a rainbow.
With a focused mindfulness investigation and clear discernment, the contraction of identification, attachment to difficult emotional states begins to break up. And the wholesome states of mind, of heart, begin to be more accessible and more often our experience of the moment. One way, and maybe maybe not your usual way, uh, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion, generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from a Mahayana Sutra, the Vimalakirti Sutra. Flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, and the white lotus do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks. Just so the Buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions. For me, this teaching is really an acknowledgement that in fact, as human beings, we experience many strong and difficult energies, the mud banks of passions. It's not that something's gone wrong. And so not to pretend to ourselves or to anyone else that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our path. The suffering, the anguish, the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions, with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a potent aspect of the process of awakening. With these poisons being transformed through practice into what in Tibetan Buddhism are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms. Afflictive emotions, cankers as the Buddha often called them, he often used very descriptive language, transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out Strong emotional energies are digested into wisdom. So just for a few moments looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Wanting, strong desire, without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of clearly discriminating mindful awareness. Sadness without self, with no self-grasping, has the possibility of digesting, transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion. Fear without self is digested into the great strong heart of metta, compassion and equanimity bringing us the capacity to connect without fear or judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, 
we learn to let go of what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. The place of coolness and luminosity in the heart-mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. What is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added. Nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. It's just enough. This moment is just enough, just as it is. We begin to know through our own experience the liberation that's immediately available in any moment. Liberation through non-clinging. In closing this evening's talk with a poem called Hokusai Says. Some of you may know Hokusai, a Japanese painter, uh, through his most famous painting, which is uh, a painting of a great big wave. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep, ch you keep, he says, keep changing. You just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself, as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. Every one of us is ancient. Every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, everything is alive. Shells, buildings, people, fish, mountains, trees. Wood is alive. Water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants in, on your veranda or the shadows of the tr trees and grasses in your garden. It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.